Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Great to see all of you here today. Appreciate so much you coming. Today we're going to look at Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, and we'll begin our reading in verse 1. I've had this passage on my mind about six weeks. I actually preached it out of town at a revival meeting recently, and uh, it's one that we've looked at together before, but what a word of truth. I like this for a lot of reasons. I'm sure God's impressed that I like his word, but I love the way this sermon came to Jeremiah. It came to him like God often speaks to me. He says, go down somewhere and sit there. Don't say anything. Just sit and watch. And sometimes God wants to speak to us that way. We're a bit too busy sometimes for all of that. Things to do. Too many other things to listen to most of the time in our culture today. It's almost like if we have a moment of silence, it drives us insane. We have to have earmuffs, earbuds, ear whatevers. We got to have our tunes. We got to have the whatever, our podcast or whatever it is. It's maybe hard for God to, 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 to get a word in sometimes. But he tells Jeremiah, He says, go down to the potter's house. Let's read together. Therefore, or the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hands of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold the clay in the potter's hands. He says, Look at it. So are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil, though, in my sight, by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I have promised to bless it. So now, then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you 
and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back. He's pleading with them. Turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and deeds. But they will say, it's hopeless. Man, what a testimony of sadness. They will say it is hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans. And each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. I hope you know that Jeremiah's nickname was the weeping prophet. When you are dealing with prophets, I always say this, but it's so important, you need to know to whom is he writing and what's going on around. Otherwise, you've just, you, you just got a giant pizza and you don't know where to bite it first. What, what's going on here? What is the truth that's, that's being given? Jeremiah, I'll start with this. First of all, he is one of the five major prophets. You have Jeremiah. And he also wrote Lamentations. Uh, also, you have Isaiah, and you have Daniel, and you have Ezekiel. And those are our major prophets. They're 12 minor prophets, and they're not minor because they're less important. They're minor because they're shorter. But we have these prophets, Jeremiah being one of the major prophets, and he is writing to Judah as a matter of fact, when he begins his ministry, they are not in captivity, but during his ministry, they will go into captivity. He will be there before it and after it. His counterpart or contemporary is Ezekiel. And it's easy to remember one went into the exile and the other stayed in Jerusalem and Jeremiah stayed in Jerusalem and Ezekiel uh, went into exile. Not sure if God intended that just to help me remember it, but perhaps. But he's writing to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom already doesn't exist. And so understand which kingdom is, to, is he writing to. Now, if it's Micah, he's unique in that he writes to both the southern and the northern kingdom. Uh, if it's Jonah, he writes to a Gentile city. But for the most part, you can pin them down every time. They're either writing to the northern tribes or to the southern tribes. And of course, there are no more northern tribes. They are gone. As a matter of fact, we should learn a lesson here before we even move on. And I will tell you, I prayed for freedom today to not worry about all that God has put on my heart because I, I know we probably won't get to all of it, but I want to just slow down and, and preach what God has put on my heart. But if you go back to 722 B.C., 722 years before Christ, the northern tribes went into captivity, and then they were wiped out. But I, I want to tell you, they weren't wiped out with the sword. Well, I'm sure some of them died. But the way the Assyrians who ruled the world at the time wiped them out, the reason the ten tribes of Israel are, nor, are no more and will never be again, they used assimilation. 
As a matter of fact, when they took them into captivity, they began to teach them their ways, the Assyrian way of thinking and the Assyrian understanding of God and marriage and fidelity and morality and all of that. And if that wasn't enough, now they didn't take everybody away into captivity. Those who were left behind, they made sure that they no longer understood marriage as something holy and sacred, and they began to marry into some people that lived around there. And when they had children, those half-breed children were called Samaritans, and that's where they came from. The point is this. If you really want to annihilate a people, just take away from them everything that makes them unique, and I can promise you, eventually, they will disappear. Now, the lesson for the church is one that I would quote old Dr. Vance Havner once again. He said, the devil's not trying to tear churches up, he's trying to join them. Because if the world can get in our churches and in our midst and in our minds and in our thinking and affect how we raise our children, how we see marriage, how we see gender and sexuality, how we see all of these kinds of things. What about the prominence of the Bible? What priority should it have in our life? How much time and money does God deserve from us? If it can can infiltrate us and begin to teach us, and they have already. But if the world around us can continue this assimilation process and get us to absolutely surrender everything that we ever held that was holy and righteous and different from the way they see it. Because sometimes, you know, we think that well, we're, we're having an effect on the world. And, and we don't realize how much the world has had an effect on us already. If the world can get the, the Christians in this world to assimilate into their thinking, then we'll be nothing more than a religion. We will be meaningless, ineffective, and the world could care less what we have to say or think. I'd say we're well on our way. I really would. I, I, I think we have to take a fresh look at ourselves. Sometimes when we just get all giddy about how well we get along with the world, we forget that Jesus himself warned us about that. I mean, from his own lips, he told us, you better be careful when all of the world starts to love you and like you. And I know there are people today that they call themselves Christians, and they look at a guy like me, I'm a troublemaker, and, and I'm always stirring the pot, and, and, and they're on a different level intellectually. That's not bragging if you're smarter than I am, by the way. But they're just, on a, they just are more cultured, they just, you know, it. it Oh, they like old preacher Mike, but 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 they just you know they've learned how to 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 mix and mingle and and to be Jesus to anybody, and of course being Jesus uh, in their mind is not being a savior; it's just being a friend or or it's just being a good example, and and that's what Jesus has been reduced to in their life, and they feel like wow, we're you know, I think the word is woke. Yeah, I know. I can't shut up about it. And see, that would be another criticism of me. I just 
don't fit in well with that. I'm just telling you, I wasn't called to fit in. I was called to preach the Word of God. And if we keep assimilating and allowing ourselves to just to be colored and, and pressured and, and influenced by this world around us, I can tell you the day will come. And for some churches, that day has come. It's utterly meaningless to even attend. It's more about a few old families getting together. But as far as seeking God and crying out to Him for forgiveness and revival and transformation and being a light in the darkness, they're worried more about blinding those maybe who haven't seen the light or irritating those who've been asleep than changing the world through the power of God. Just a tidbit there. Well, Israel in the north is gone. Two tribes left, and Judah's headed toward captivity. In 40 years from the time God called uh, uh, Jeremiah, they, they will be gone. Now, I'll say this quickly. When he came to power, there was a fellow named Josiah who was king. He's an interesting fellow. I think he was eight years old when he came to the throne. He died when he was 39. Kind of got himself in a battle. He had probably no business fighting with the Egyptians and got himself killed. But that's about the only negative thing you could say about him. Josiah was a great king, even though he took the throne very early. But after he had been king, I think about 20-something years or so, uh, finally they went in to do some work on the temple. Uh, his father was Ammon, and his father, grandfather uh, of Josiah, was Manasseh. And Manasseh had really let the temple just go to trash. It wasn't kept up. It was falling apart. He had erected idols all over the place. And what Josiah did, he says, I know there's some money in an account. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. But I know there's some money that's been set aside. I want you to take that money and give it to the men that are working on the temple. We want to fix this place of worship back up. We want to fix it to where uh, it is something holy and sacred, and it looks like it should look. And in the midst of doing that, do you remember what they found? They found the book of the law. That's exactly right. We don't know exactly if it was just Deuteronomy or the whole Pentateuch. But they found the Word of God. And here, boy, there's another sermon for us. I mean, a lot of times in our lives, we have the Word of God. Oh, yeah, Lord, I believe the Bible with all my heart. But it's so covered with trash and junk. It's such a low priority in our lives. We may read it occasionally if we get a chance. As far as really using it, as a guide, that happens sometimes and sometimes not. It's, it's, it's easy, even in our churches, for us to get so busy with things that are about us that we neglect the Word of God. But it says when Josiah, it was brought to him, the king, and he read it, he tore his garments. He said, this is the truth of God. We have to return to this. And they had, they had some measure of revival for a while. But then when Josiah dies, Jehoahaz, his son would become king. He would only last three months. 
Jehoiakim would follow him. I think he ruled about 11 years or so. And then Jehoiakim would follow Jehoiakim. And then after Jehoiakim came Zedekiah. And of course, Zedekiah was the one that was king when Nebuchadnezzar came to town with the Babylonian army. And he said, I've had enough. Matter of fact, he put Zedekiah on the, well, actually, the Egyptians put Zedekiah on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar took him off the throne. He put Gedaliah in as a governor. I know you're getting a lot of cool names for your next child. Just look at it that way. But Gedaliah, he's appointed as a governor by Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you work for me. Are there any questions? That's, that's, that's how Babylonians talk back then. And, and so, Gedaliah answered directly to Nebuchadnezzar. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar came to town and says, all right, take everything. And no one could ever believe that he's going to get to walk right in the front door of the temple, take that big sword and just whack in a big hole through the veil and go right into the holy of holies and say, load all this mess up, we're taking it back. But the lesson that Judah learned from that is if we treat the things of God as common, the day will come when God will allow others to treat them as common as well. That's why I worry about in our churches that we, we, sometimes we don't give this place priority. We don't give our worship together priority. We don't, don't give our relationship with God the priority that it needs, and then we get all upset when somebody says something that we consider blasphemous about God or about the church. I can just tell you, that's what happens. You don't expect the world out there to do anything other than that when we have already desecrated our own faith with our foolishness and selfishness. But that's what Jeremiah's, that, that's the church that's just called Jeremiah. <laughs> wow. It's a tough job. His own family hated him. I mean, his own family members disliked him. He was whipped and put in stocks. I'll just give you a, I got a copy of his resume offline. He was attacked by a mob in Jeremiah 26. He was whipped in Jeremiah 20 threatened by the king in Jeremiah 36, ridiculed like you just wouldn't believe in Jeremiah 28. Worst of all, God told him not to marry. He says, you need to go at all of this alone. And so he has gotten to the place that he just felt like no one cared. But he did. And that was a great burden for him. That's why he writes another book called Lamentations. He is lamenting what he saw, because what he's going to see in this passage is going to just constantly haunt him. If God's people had stayed in God's hand and had remained pliable and, and had remained soft in his hands and had allowed God to make them into something awesome, he knew that all of this could have been avoided. Nebuchadnezzar would have would have died the second he touched that temple. He knew none of that had to happen. God tells him that here, but he knows it didn't have to happen. But it did. It did. And it just 
crushed him. Well, let's go down to the potter's house with him and take a look at the potter and the clay. I want you to notice, first of all, that the potter has a plan. I like this one. The potter has a plan. Two things about his plan. One, his intentions. In verse 3, it says that I went to the potter's house, and when I walked in, I looked, and he was making something on the wheel. You know, one of the hardest truths to convey to people a lot of times is that when you try to teach them that God didn't just put you on this earth accidentally, he's got a design for your life. He had a plan for your life. This just blows your mind, but the guy that just butchered all of those people in Idaho, wherever it was, it just is terrible, the horrific crime. God had a plan for that guy's life. He had a plan. And I don't know about the victims that he killed, but I can just tell you, God had a plan for them. And I think, though, if we could start with the Christians and help us to understand, first of all, God has got a plan. He is, he is making something. He's making something. And so let me just say this to you. I may look like just an old wad of mud, but don't judge me too quickly because God's making something. Oh, it might not look like a whole lot yet. It might not, I, you may not even know what I'm going to turn out to be. I might not know all the things that, that God uh, would do in my life and what His plan is for me. But I do believe the cancer, the accident, all of that. I'm not saying God caused it. He just wanted to hurt me in any kind of way. But I can tell you this. God can take the things that He likes and the things He doesn't like. The things that are His will and the things that are not His will. And He says, I will put a whip to their back and make them work together to the good for those who love me because he has a plan oh if this was a black church i'd tell you to touch three people and say don't judge me god's making something but i won't do that to you maybe we ought to do more of that you let me do too much of the talking God's making something. Sometimes it may not feel like it. And I can tell you, when you start working clay and you start twisting it and turning it and making it into a shape that it's never known, sometimes those hands get heavy and it gets painful. But, boy, if you will keep your faith and trust in God and stay uh, malleable and, and soft in the hands of the master, I can tell you one day you will see his plan come to fruition because I want to tell you right now, life might look like it doesn't make any sense and it might feel all distorted, but I can promise you God is making something. He's making something. Jeremiah 29, we've used this verse quite often. As a matter of fact, let me put it in context for you. At some point, God tells Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, he says, I want you to write a letter to those who are in captivity, to the people, to the elders, to the prophets, and to the priests. And he says in verse 11 of Jeremiah 29, 
You know what it says. For I know the plans that I have for you. Now you know the context of that. He's to send this letter to those who are in Babylon in exile. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. When is that going to happen, Pastor Mike? I've been wanting it to happen for so long. I've just been longing for it. Well, verse 13, he says, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. To those in Babylon in captivity, he says, when you get your mind off of everything else, yourselves, your situation, you stop hating God for where you wound up, you stop blaming everybody else for your problems. You stop thinking God's dead. You stop thinking that God doesn't care. He says, when you search for him with all of your heart, you will find him. Oh, man. God's making something. Secondly, not only his intentions, but his ingredients. He's using clay. He's using clay. Now, clay comes from, I know I hate it even started that sentence. Clay is dirt and water, okay? I'll give you a second to write that down. My, my point is clay is so simple. You, you think about it in creation. God took when he made man. It doesn't say he created man. He made man. He's been speaking things into being. Yeah, let's throw a galaxy over there. That's an empty place. Oh, I bet you he said this. I'm paraphrasing, Doc. I bet he said, let's make a few black holes. That'll keep those stupid scientists busy for a million years. And about the time they figured him out, let's change it. I, I just think he, I don't know, maybe. But when he made man, he didn't say, let man be. He got his hands involved. And he took apar, which is clods, okay? Now, I always use this as an opportunity to tell our wives, men, to not be too hard on us. We started out as just clods. But he took those clods of dirt and he formed them, made, asah, made them and shaped them. So here's the point. He took the lowest, simplest part of creation and he made the highest pinnacle of creation. Now that's cool to think about. But what's really cool to think about and we better think about is it also shows us where we would be without God. Before we get all bowed out in the chest about making partner or 
paying off all the bills or getting that doctorate or whatever it is in our life that makes us feel so good about ourselves, just remember, without God, you would be dirt. It's only when He puts His hands on us and forms us and makes us into what He wants us to be that we have any value whatsoever. Potter has a plan. Secondly, the potter has a problem, though. It says, but the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. The word spoiled means destroyed or corrupted. It's another translation of it. could have been something in the clay that didn't belong there. It could have been a stone or... Or there could have been a spot in the clay where it just didn't uh, soften like the rest of it did. There could have been something deep inside that you would not have noticed until God began to shape and to form and to mold. And then that's when you begin to discover that there's something here that, that is just not right. And, and the potter doesn't fight it. He doesn't say, okay, and I, 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 this is just a, another sermon here. But he, he doesn't say, I'm going to work with it, okay? I know you're really big about who you are and personal identity and all of that. And I know you're real big about, well, this is the way I see it. And, and I'm, I, you know, I got some personal convictions about it and all of that. If there's anything in me contrary to God's will and God's Word, I can promise you right now, I can never expect God to just go ahead and just make whatever He can out of me. Oh, no. Jeremiah said, no, he crushed it. Started all over. He broke it. He just took it and reshaped it and remolded it. I think a lot of people come to God sometimes with a two big handfuls of individualism. Well, God, I kind of know what I believe already, and I came out of this background and or whatever, and I've always thought this. And, of course, God, you know I'm well-educated, so I'm going to approach the Bible scientifically and blah, blah, blah. And you bring all that and dump it in God's lap and say, now see what you can make of this. God says, no, thank you. I make what I want to make. I make what I want to make. The vessel had to be broken and changed, not the potter. That's our problem nowadays. We go look for a new potter, a new church, a new husband, new wife, new school, new friends, new job, new something else. We never get around to figuring out the problem is with the clay, <laughs> You don't need a new potter. You need to let the same potter that created you and made you, let him form you and reshape you into what he wants you to be. Man. Well, God's people in this passage had become dysfunctional and they lost the ability to respond to the master's hands. And that's a terrible terrible place to be the plan the problem thirdly the potter's patience in verse four so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make messed up clay no problem he can fix it over 
and over again as long as the clay does not harden itself and get stiff and rebellious. Man, just think about all the times that the Word of God addresses the sin of rebellion. He says it's like witchcraft. It's a horrible sin because when we rebel against God, it opens up the floodgates of so many other issues when we begin to stiffen ourselves against the will and the hands of God. As long as it's moldable, He can fix it. And He can make it in what He wants it to become. a lot of folks in our world aren't looking for that. They're, they're, they're looking more for maybe acceptance uh, or for God to, to invest in them as they are or for Him to join their plan or, or for Him to, uh, 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 to certify what they've made of themselves. No, 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 no. He is the one with the authority to make us. We have to remember that. It's hard for us sometimes. Church, God may lead us in places sometimes we may not want to go. He may scare us to death sometimes. I I think it's going to take a measure of faith and trust in God like maybe we have never known for the years that are ahead of us, friend. It's going to take some believing and trusting in His will. And what is His will? We're going to have to get on our faces and seek Him with all of our hearts. And that's the only way we're going to find Him and find His will. I think a lot of times in church it's easy. I think John Maxwell told this story one time, to be like the world's greatest archer. Somebody was riding down the road one day and saw a barn and the side of the barn was full of arrows, and every single one of them had hit the bullseye dead on. The guy that saw it was into archery, and he thought, man, i got to ask, who is making shots like that? There was an old farmer there. He had an old bow that he had found, and man, he must have been awesome. guy said, can I watch you shoot? And he said, sure. He said, I shoot a little every day, and he went out there and Kapow, yeah, oh, I'm skipping some details, but an arrow hit the barn, didn't hit a single target. Farmer walked up with a can of paint and a brush and painted one around it. John Maxwell in the leadership conference was warning us as pastors. Sometimes it's easy to go, well, this happened, so that must be God's will. Let's just paint a target around it and say that's what we was aiming at. Really? Maybe that's not what God wanted at all. Maybe we missed it completely. Maybe with all of our discernment and we put our brains together and added a load of common sense in there and nothing wrong with that, but the next thing you know, we came out with a plan, something we could afford, something that we thought we could handle, something we thought we could work through, and when the arrow hit the barn, we just painted us a target around it and decided, okay, that's good enough. We're going to have to soften up in the master's hands. Let him make us into what he wants us to be. It's not always like we think it'll be. Gideon had 32,000 men, well-trained, ready to go. Now, this is a prepared man. (laughs) God says, well, 32,000 is way too many. He sent him off to battle with 300. 
lot of people would stop right there and go, hey, this, this, is, this, is, out of, this is out of kilter. Doesn't make any sense. But Gideon followed God's will. We preached last week about crossing Jordan. Bad time to cross at the flood stage, but that's when God said to do it. When the crowd was hungry, when Jesus was there, and the disciples started figuring up a plan and putting together some numbers and had the spreadsheet all hooked up and figured out, well, we got to go somewhere and buy enough food to feed all of these people. And a kid shows up with five loaves and two fish, and with that, Jesus feeds the multitude. Sometimes that's how he does it. It's scary, isn't it? I'd rather be scared than out of his will. Well, Potter's plan, problem, patience. Last of all, his prerogative. Said he made it in something, verse 4, as it pleased the potter to make. I know we've covered a little of this already. But I just want to tell you, it's always up to the potter what he wants made. He doesn't really want our fingerprints on it at all. We, what he wants from us is surrender. You know one of the interesting things you'll find in the Old Testament? Exodus chapter 20, verse 25. Maybe you can just jot that down to remember it. But God gave his people a command. He said, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. I don't want you cutting stones. They built the Tower of Babel out of bricks they made, made the way that they wanted them to be, bricks that would fit in that wall anywhere. God says, when you build my altar, he says, I don't want you to touch the stones. I don't want you coming to the altar and dolling it up and making something pretty out of it. I don't want it to look like your handiwork. I don't want it to be a testimony of of what a great stonemason you are. No, you pick up stones and don't you dare touch them. You pick them up the way I created them, and that's how you build my altars. I've always thought that was interesting. I think God's altar, however we understand that in our churches nowadays, I think at some point they became a stage that was a place for us to maybe glorify ourselves and not a place that reflected God. I'm not saying we need to tear this down. I'm just saying we need to make sure that everything we do up here glorifies God. That's what he says. Well, his prerogative, he can make it however he wants. You and I, as I close today, we have to be careful. We, we uh, have an assimilation team here. We're working on building that up some and investing some more into that because when people come, we want them to know about us and how we feel about the Word of God and how we feel about them being here. We want them to know that they're welcoming, all of that, and, and, and 
man, I'm, I'd be the worst one. I'd be the worst one in, in the world. I, I'm fine up here. I'm at a, I'm at a safe distance. <laughs> but when it comes to personal interaction, I start trying to remember your name because you just told me last week. I start sweating. I already am. But I, I just get all nervous. I'd be the worst, the worst you could ever have on the assimilation team. I'm still getting up the courage to go back to the back door and greet everybody as they leave. That's the only thing COVID blessed me with. But we have to know this, friend. This world has an assimilation team, too. They want us to know how they feel about things. Oh, yeah. How they feel about God. Some of them want us to know, hey, I used to go to church at Cornerstone. I don't anymore. They got assimilated. I'm not saying it happened to everyone that left. Maybe they, God led them to a ministry. But you got to remember this. Those outside God's family, they, a lot of them want to be right rather than righteous. A lot of them want formation instead of formation they want affirmation. And instead of creation and to be recreated into a new creature, they're looking more for confirmation. And instead of maturation, they're looking for validation. And instead of a potter, they're looking for approval. And all of those things sound, they sound good especially in our world today, that is all about the self. Self has replaced soul. What I like, what I feel, how I see it, it's one of the most revered gods in all the world. And it's so easy for us, you and I, to look at each other and go, you know, I, I think God would want me to be happy. What verse did you read that? Where would you read that? And I'm not saying God wants you to be miserable, but I will tell you what God actually did say. If you're interested, he wants us to be holy. And if we are holy and we are set apart and we do give our focus to him and we do let him realign our priorities and we do allow him to take the clay and mold it into what he wants it to be, oh, you'll go by happy on the back wheel, friend. You'll have something far greater. And happy, why would you shoot so low? C.S. Lewis says we're like kids making mud pies. We've been offered a day at the beach, but we've decided to turn down something that would be much better than what we have to stay there and to continue to pat that mud because we've settled for happy instead of holy. We'd rather be right uh, than righteous. Man, let's pray. God, I ask you to help us, Lord. Help us to be soft in your hands, God. Willing to allow you to make us into what you would have us be. Sometimes it hurts, God. Sometimes, Lord, we forget ourselves that you have a plan that you are making something. You're not playing in the mud. 
you're not just seeing what jumps off the wheel. No, you have a plan for us. Please help us with that, God. And I pray you would protect us. Help us, Lord, to be wise as serpent and innocent as doves, God. That's not easy for us. But help us to be sharp when it comes to those little areas of compromise, God, that where we begin to take what is holy and treat it as common, as normal, as every day doesn't mean, Lord, we've cursed it or despised it. It just got in line with all the other priorities in our life. Lord, please forgive us. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.